Welcome to Product Leaders Podcast, a podcast by FireArt Studio. We delve into the world of product leadership to help empower you to improve end user experience. I'm your host, Dima Wenglinski. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dima Wenglinski. I'm host at Product Leaders Podcast. Today at our studio, Alejandro Carrillo, he's product manager who launched and scales startups globally. He is currently senior product manager at Oyster. He previously worked as a senior product manager at Job and Talent. He has an entrepreneur degree from Edem University, and uh, he has certifications in product-led growth fundamentals and uh, professional Scrum Master One. Hello, Alejandro. It's nice to have you today. How are you doing? Thank you for having me here, Dima. It's a pleasure to be here, and hopefully we'll have a nice chat. Yeah, definitely we will. Tell me a bit about your background and your current position in Oyster. Mm-hmm. So I'll navigate through like the early days. So when I finished up university, I always had super clear in my mind that I wanted to build my own thing, build my own startup. And for me, it was really important that it was something that I really enjoyed doing and so that I could learn the most out of, out of it. So when building my first startup, I was a, really, I was a gamer. So I really enjoyed playing video games and having fun with friends. And I was like, hmm, there's this trend where some people like to go to gaming events and they, they like to travel to go to those places, right? So they were going to Berlin mainly to watch some League of Legends games, which is a popular video game. And I was like, why don't we build a travel agency similar to the music festivals? but for gaming events. And that's my first startup. We launched that. We massively failed because we didn't identify correctly the product market fit. That was my first learning, like, and the most important one, like, no, don't spend any resources on building something without testing it first, like validate always the idea. And that was probably the, the first piece for me getting into product, right? Because it was my first point of contact. But the good thing about that experience is that we built a really good community in Instagram. I I always was like a really community-driven person in the sense of I, I like to listen to my users. And that's something that I always kept in mind when building things. So the second startup came from a request from our users, which was like, hey, you know, you are doing pretty cool stuff in Instagram. Like we enjoy what you post. We enjoy interacting with you because we were playing with them in Instagram. Why don't we build a, a social app, a social network? And we came up with this idea uh, that we validated with our beta customers that we had. We had like a select group in Discord where we shared like some ideas and started validating concepts. And we launched like a super simple, and it's funny when I think about it, like we went to a gaming event with the contacts that we made and we launched like a web page where we said like, hey, the, with this app, you can connect with other gamers. You can find someone to play with. People went into the into the app and it was nothing. There was nothing there. Like we did the Dropbox approach. I don't know if you know about that one. Yeah. But basically when, when Dropbox launched, you clicked on start and there was nothing. Like there was just leave us your email and we'll get to you when we launch. So basically we did that approach. We managed to get like 10,000 registrations in less than one week. So we were like, hey, then it does make sense to build this. And here's my second learning from this second adventure, which is like, hey, we managed to scale a lot in terms of users. Like we launched the app a few months later, 
we scaled it up to 30,000 users, 40,000 users. But we had one main issue, which is we didn't think about monetization. We didn't think about monetization because we were super obsessed with being super laser user focused and thinking about B2C products, B2C social networks. We have WhatsApp that's free. We have Facebook that's free. We have everything free. But our policy was like, we won't put in ads. However, where are you earning money from, right? Who pays the servers? So we we participated in the accelerator program here in Spain, Lanzadera, which is a pretty famous accelerator. We learned a lot there, but we learned also that when building products, you always have to keep monetization in mind because no one likes to talk about monetization. It's not pretty to talk about it, but it's needed to survive as a business and to grow as a business. Because in a sense, like we would be hypocrites if we if we said like we didn't build businesses to also earn money. Like yeah, eventually today or tomorrow, you have to do it. Exactly. So I learned a lot from that experience. I knew that I loved building products. Like I had to code in my experience there because we didn't have money for developers. I had to also do like the CEO role. I had to do some finance, like a bit of everything. And I was like, what should I do with my career? So I was thinking a lot. I definitely want to do something related to product. I definitely want to work with engineers because I I really think I, I have an understanding of how engineering works. And I don't know, I enjoy doing this. Like for me, it's having fun with what you do and making a difference in the world. So product management checked all those boxes because I was like, hey, where can I make a difference? Like where can I move the world? Because that's also something that moves me in terms of social impact mission, right? So I then went to product school, a Silicon Valley company, because I wanted to gain a bit of experience in product. Like I knew about product from building products, but I didn't know the concepts behind it, right? So I didn't have like a solid base to basically build my career upon, like apart from instinct. I mean, those hard skills, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it was basically instincts up to that point. But then I went through product school, also took a product management course here in Spain and, and basically gained some concepts that I could apply and I could relate to my previous experiences, right? So I was like, hey, I was doing this stuff that I didn't know I was doing, right? And I could have done X, Y, and Z much better. From there, I got my first role as product manager at Job and Talent, where I started as a junior one year and a half back or two years now, time flies. And I grew up super fast. And that was one of my most life-changing experiences, joining a, a unicorn, right? And a hyper-growth company where every single day you are challenged with many different things, right? So I had to step up in terms of career progression, uh, like really, really hard. Learned a lot. Started with one small team of four engineers. We were the growth team, which was like a new team in the whole company. We we were driving like a new vision of, of doing integrations and, and growing the integrations area. It was more oriented towards integrations rather than growth. And through our vision and through our results, we managed to grow up to having four teams that I was managing actively when I left. So grew a lot in that experience, learned a lot about teams, management, stakeholder management, of course, is one of the most important pieces, but also about being super user-centric, which I believe is one of the things that you can lose in the vision when you are developing your career, because it's easy to get lost in the day-to-day fixing bugs, managing stakeholders, and not thinking about like what's the real user problem that we are trying to solve, right? I believe with your first experience, it would be hard for you to forget about users and what they actually need, what they actually want with this foundation. Now you are biased, you're like sticked to them for good. 
<laughs> You're completely right. But it's super easy to forget though, when you are in a hyper growth environment, because everything moves so fast, like it's incredible. I definitely recommend if anyone that's listening has the chance to join a hyper growth company, it's so different. It's a completely different experience. It's similar to entrepreneurship, but with the safety that you are in a company, right? So that you, you have like some sort of net covering your, your financial needs. Just to be on the same page, define super hyper growth company. What does it mean for you? So for me, a hyper growth company is a company that's growing like three, four X uh, per year in terms of revenue. Similarly, I like to talk about revenue mainly because in a sense, impact is, is delivered on revenue. And that's also something I've learned throughout the years. Initially, it's, it's easy to fall into vanity metrics too. Like, hey, we've grown 100%. Yeah, but what does 100% mean, right? In terms of money. Like if it's 100% of 100 euros, then that's not that much. So revenues are a really good figure for that. So for me, hyper growth is 2x, 3x, but when you, we are talking about like big revenues, like if we are in a seed company, then hyper growth would be 10x, right? So the amount of Xs would depend on the volume of the company, on the stage of the company. Okay, got it. At some point, you mentioned that you built those startups, then you decided to go to some university to, to buy some courses uh, to get hard skills as they should look, not as they intuitive to you. How those hard skills were different from your intuitive way of work and whether they were different? They were. They were really different. Uh, so basically, when you work intuitively, which is something that I really value. In fact, when I'm interviewing candidates today, like I always test out the waters for some entrepreneurship experience. But basically, when you work intuitively, you are more thinking about just what would fit the user, right? So how do you build an experience that pleases the user, for example? But if we were to do it in a structured way, we would do a proper discovery process with more metrics, more analytics, more like, I'll put you like a super simple example where you can see the difference between intuition and, and structure. If I'm doing an experiment and I think, for example, based on my intuition, that this new design will drive more activation, then I'm looking at activation rate, right? And I'm doing it in a structured way because I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to launch an experiment that maybe drives a 10% more of activation on this specific feature because the activation rate is low. And I've detected that the activation rate is low. When I was doing it based on intuition, I didn't even look at the activation rate. I was like, hey, I know we, this page can convert more, so let's just do an iteration. But I wasn't actively looking at the metrics. And that was one of the, the most important learnings there. There's many other learnings, like the whole discovery process, like how you involve design into the equation, how you involve engineering into the equation. When I was doing it intuitively, I was doing it like as it suited the case. Like in some cases, I would do it, in others I wouldn't. But here I, I follow like a more structured path. It's like giving some structure to what you already know. So it's sort of complementary. Okay. Are there any cases then when this intuitive way would be more convenient? Uh, it's always more convenient, obviously, uh, more productive and better. Mm -hmm. When I mentor, like I have some, some people that I'm mentoring currently, I like to always tell them like analysis, analysis, analysis is paralysis in, in many cases, right? So intuition really works in products that are less developed. So products that have more uncertainty. When you are trying to find product market fit, you need intuition. Like 
you can test the waters, but you need some sort of intuition to know what you want to build from scratch. Like it's a completely new idea. Probably there's always some competitors that have already built solutions, but if you want to differentiate from them, you need a certain degree of intuition. So I think in the early stages of a startup, intuition is really valuable because it's basically what makes you different. I'm not saying that you don't need this structured way, right? And and you don't need to analyze metrics, but I think that's where intuition matters the most. And there's an example at Jovan Talent, which is a, a unicorn right now. We were restructuring part of our product organization and we were focusing on, on certain aspects of the product. That was basically the CEO's intuition. There were some metrics that supported that case, but the CEO came in and said like, hey, I think that strategically in order to get there in 20 years, we're going to need to do this, 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 and that. And the board trusted the CEO. So there's some cases, like many cases where intuition is really important. But whenever there's a more structure, companies like Meta, Google, Amazon, etc., intuition is less important because everything is based on data. Like there's no change that happens without data. So I think it's mainly related to the stage of the business, but it depends case by case. Okay. I think in case of metaverse, it was intuition probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it didn't work. Well, we don't know if... We don't know yet, yes. We don't but... know yet. I mean, the news that we're having is that it's not showing promising results. Something I'm really interested about, in fact, and this is like a completely off topic, is ChatGPT and the AI. I think that's more of the future and that's my personal opinion. Like having this assisted AI that, that helps you do things and helps you power up your skills. So I think that could replace Google, but this is more based on intuition. Yeah, yeah. Cool technology. Very curious where it will let us. Have you tested it out? Have you tested ChatGPT? Yeah, it actually worked quite well, surprisingly well. Much better than all the image creation AI products. Also, I was on Web Summit in Lisbon recently, and there was some product, some startup on the very, very early stage that you can implement into the Microsoft Teams, I guess. Unfortunately, not in Slack yet. And you can put all the data from your company. Let's say you are a growing company, 100 to 500 people. You have a lot of information for different departments, knowledge base. We at our company have this knowledge base and it's already huge. Nevertheless, that we are like 100 plus company. And with this product, it analyzes all the data and you just ask questions in Microsoft team. And it brings you answers from the whole Notion page or Wiki or whatever you use to keep the data. And it's amazing idea. Yeah, definitely. Like Notion has even implemented their own AI, which is in beta. Like not everyone has access, but I've tried it out and it's awesome. Like it works. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying it out for product specifically. I had an idea and I was like, help me brainstorm some ideas to do this. And it does pull out like pretty solid ideas. It's really interesting how that works. And I think talking about products specifically, like you can apply it to the day-to-day like super easily. User stories is a really good example. Sometimes you think about functionality and you have to write down, of course, user stories. So instead of you having to think about all of the use cases, you could also 
chat with the chat GPT and get some ideas there. And I've been doing that as a test and it's pretty, pretty solid. Like it does give you like really cool user stories. Yeah, I believe Notion implemented GPT 3.5, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because recently OpenAI opened the API to that, to better users. I happen to have this access. So I tested it a little bit and I'm not a developer and I'm not interested. I just applied to this program mm -hmm. early. So I don't know why, but I have this access. <laughs> and it is very cool. Very cool. It is. A side topic from AI. How important <laughs> is it for you to work for a company that is strongly mission-led? Yeah. So I was mentioning before, like for me, it's one of the main pieces. If I go back to what I was saying initially, the main reason I wanted to found a startup when I finished university is because I wanted to build something that changed the world, right? And that's been my obsession, like not only since, since I finished university, but I think since I was a kid, I've always had that in mind. Like how can I build something that changes people's lives? So for me, working at a company that's mission-driven, it's really important, but working at a company that the mission is around social impact, it's even more important. So let me explain. So whenever I worked as companies, I've been super fortunate because the companies I've worked for are very mission driven and it does impact like the way you take decisions, specifically strategic decisions. At Oyster, for example, we are very social driven in terms of social impact, like changing people's lives in the sense that you can have the job you like wherever you want. So personally, that was something that touched me a lot because I live in Valencia, which is a city in Spain. And whenever I wanted to get like my dream product management role, I always had this uh, doubt, should I move to London? Should I move to the US? Should I move to any of those places? And I didn't want to move. Like I'm really, really happy living at Valencia. So I've worked remote for Oyster. I also work remote for Jovan Talent. But at Oyster, I really found that connection where I'm given remote jobs. Like we are facilitating people to be employed remotely in any country. And that opens up like the world to many, many different scenarios. We are favoring underdeveloped countries to become developed in the way that those people can now access jobs that they couldn't access before. And we intentionally do it, for example, in pricing, like our pricing strategy includes the social impact mission in the sense that for countries that are less developed, we charge less intentionally and we lose margin on those countries. Like we have several countries here that we are losing money by employing someone in those countries, right? By letting our customers, sorry, employ someone in those countries. But we want to do that. Like it's intentional. We want to generate an impact in, in the world. And of course, it's not that we are losing money as a business, but we take a loser position in the countries where we want to generate impact and expect to generate that impact, right? Because our motto is like, imagine you put money into the pockets of someone in one of these countries. That will probably generate a loop, an economical loop under his environment because he will have money to spend in his uh, local uh, neighborhood. He will have money to spend in his country. And then hopefully that will help the country is really aspirational, right? But at least that will help his circle grow, 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 grow. And hopefully we make those countries be more prosperous. At least that's our way of thinking. So to answer your question, for me, it's really important. <laughs> it also makes a lot of sense to differentiate the prices between countries and make sure that for each country, your product is affordable. 
even not from social perspective, but from the product growth perspective, because your conversion obviously will be higher. No, but the difference here, and just to point out, so our customer is someone that wants to hire anyone in the world. So our customer could be a US company and they could hire, let's say, someone in the UK or someone in India. Hiring someone in the UK would be like one price and hiring someone in India would be another price, as an example. So it's not a matter of gaining more customers, like it's a matter of where do we want to generate that social impact. Yes, now I got it. So with your approach, you amplify the hirings from different countries and you make the job offer more spread through the countries that aren't that popular because for your end user, which is company in US, it will be cheaper to use your product to hire a person from, I don't know, South Africa, for example, right? Mm -hmm. That's cool. Super cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's something like when they told me this, it's super funny. Like this is a fun story I had with my director. So I'm working at Oyster as the product manager for the growth and monetization area. And it's hilarious because I failed that monetization in the past. I was successful at growth, but I failed that monetization. So it was also a chance for myself to redeem. And I was chatting with my director and I was like, hey, like this were my first days at the company. Why are we taking a loser position in this country? like... At least let's be at break even. Let's not lose money by charging like a fee that's lower than our cost. And and he was like, no, no, no. We intentionally want to take that loser position because we want to favor those countries. And to be honest, initially I was shocked. Sold. I'm yours. Exactly. I mean, you you have to be kidding me. But then I saw it and, and it's a reality. So, so I'm really proud to be part like of this company and, and the way we do things. And unfortunately, this week, the company had to announce some layoffs, which is also a pretty controversial topic. Personally, I understand the reasoning behind it, but I've never seen such transparency with how we tell things at the company. And that's a side topic from this, but transparency. Transparency is something I really, really value a lot and that I've learned throughout my career that works really well with everyone. Like not having silos of information and a super silly example is basically making all your Slack channels public. There's no private Slack channels. Imagine the impact that could have in a company because everyone has access to all of the information and there's no silos of information, right? It's a tricky and it's it's difficult to do. Of course, you end up having like one or two private channels because for managerial purposes, you need those. But essentially, all of the other channels are public and you can join any channel. That's something, for example, that we do at Oyster and that I was surprised that works. You can join any channel, you can peep around any channel. Like It's really, really cool. Yeah, that's cool cultural thing to gather all the people to make them equal or to make them feel equal. And those layoffs right now is today's problem of the world. It's not your company is getting down or my company getting down. It's just recession. We have to deal with it. The only thing is how we do it. I heard those terrible stories of Salesforce and so on companies that unfortunately didn't manage to do it in a proper way. Different companies, different CEOs. Mm. No, I mean, I think there's many different ways of handling it. It's complex to handle in any situation. I'd say there's no like good spot for this or good way of doing this like it's just the best way that you can manage it from your perspective like there's no good or bad of course we can judge and it's easy to judge but we don't know like all the context for all the companies you know so whenever i see this topic i'd rather like focus on 
supporting the people that are getting laid off and basically helping them get their next job or get their next opportunity rather than focusing on harassing companies or saying like, hey, bad PR, etc. Like we can do that, but I think it's much more valuable to just help the people that are being laid off because it's families. Yeah, I believe even in those bad cases that we heard from news, mm. they take care of people, especially because they are big companies. It would be unfair to think about them as uh, monsters. It's just if you heard about this from news, it's probably some small fuck up from some manager or big manager, maybe C-level position that maybe said something wrong and this is why you heard it. But I believe people are good. I mean, in general. So probably they managed to do everything in their power to make sure that those people are in good hands, that they are getting new jobs, that they have some parachute, etc., etc. Unfortunately, this is today's reality. Yeah, I think we will navigate this sort of reality for, and I hope I'm wrong, but I think it's going to be the whole 2023 and probably some of 2024. And it's also a reality for startups, for upcoming entrepreneurs, like raising investment was sort of a party in the past few years. Like it was very, I wouldn't say easy because it's not easy, but it was easier. And now it's much more complex. Valuations are going down. So it's the whole microeconomic environment that's, that's changing. But I also want to say like on the positive note, there's so many opportunities right now to build something like, wow, it's crazy. I always say this, but if you think about it, after each crisis, there's always huge opportunities and there's always huge startups that end up being like the, the new leaders of the industry. So I think if someone is interested in, in building something, now is the time. Like now is specifically the time of doing it. Yeah, I agree. You mentioned that your clients are companies. Could you elaborate a little bit? Who exactly are your clients? What is the ideal customer profile? So right now, and this may change and, and it could change, right? But right now it's uh, startups that are looking to scale their businesses and are looking to hire more people. Because basically we have a different way of monetizing and a really interesting way of monetizing. A typical SaaS product monetizes by subscription. Like it's the, the normal way, right? You have different plans and you monetize for the plans that you offer. And those plans give you access to certain pieces of the platform. In our case specifically, we took a different approach, which is the similar approach to everyone in the industry, where our platform is free and we don't charge for you using the platform. And this is where, in fact, my team is, is working a lot in being product-led. I'm talking about product-led growth. So we don't charge for the platform, but we charge for the higher event. So we charge when you are going to hire someone. That is that you can use the product, you can find the value in the product, you can have that wow moment of saying like, hey, this is super useful. And that's when we, we charge. So we charge per hire. And as you know, like in order to monetize our own business, then we need people to hire. So it's usually going back to the customer question is startups that are looking to scale their businesses and looking to scale their workforces from, let's say, 10 people to 20 people, 30 people, 40 people. And that may change. Like disclaimer, when this is released, we may be changing focus, but currently that's the case. And it makes a ton of sense. Of course, we would like to have like the big players, but that's a different world. They usually have their own human resources departments doing all of the hiring because in some sort of way, we complement that department. But when you get really big, it's also a challenge 
because you usually have your own entity in each country that you hire people and you have your own team managing your hires. So you don't need a software like ours right now. Looking forward in the future, we would like, of course, to be there, but it's super far away to say that. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of what you do and your competitors, whether your product is similar to Deal or they just take care of operational stuff and you take care of hirings? I think it's similar to Deal. The main thing is that from my perspective, Deal is more focused on the contractor product. So in this industry, basically you can hire someone as a contractor or as a full-time employee, right? So for me, Deal is really, really good at the contractor product. Like they are very solid in terms of product. And I think we are more, in my opinion, and this is my personal opinion, we are more focused on the employee side of things and on hiring employees, right? We do offer the contractor product, but for us, it's super important that employee part. So I'd say our most direct competitor, in my opinion, is remote rather than deal. Okay. You mentioned that the product is free. You only charge for hirings. But what your users can do with your free product? Mm -hmm. So we have something that's really popular in the market, which is our cost calculator. So basically, if you are looking to hire someone, let's say you are a company that wants to hire someone in the US. So with the cost calculator, you can input, hey, I want to hire someone in the US, and this is the salary I'm going to pay for that person. And you get an output of all the costs that you would have to pay in, in the US. So it's not the salary, but also like the taxes, the contributions, so the benefits that you have to offer. And we have that for every single country so where we can hire in. So we have that for, I think it's 180 countries where you can view the full costs of hiring someone. And the accuracy is around uh, more than 90%, which is pretty, pretty high. So that provides a ton of value to customers, even though that you end up hiring or not. And going back to the way I think and the way the company thinks too, but that was one of the main reasons I joined, product growth. I don't know if you've heard about that concept, pretty trendy these days, PLG product growth. So basically the whole concept around product growth is that your product sells itself, right? So it's not that you are replacing sales, is that you are complementing sales. And I wanted to mention this because I've heard a lot of podcasts and I heard a lot of chatter about like product-led growth. And I want to highlight, like, it's not about replacing sales. It's about moving sales into a different stage in the process. So instead of the typical website where you just go into the website and see, get a demo, and you have to get the demo in order to see the product, this approach moves that demo into a later stage because you basically first go into the product try it out, you like it, you don't like it, whatever, but you try it out and you see the value of the product. And we try to minimize the time to value. I want you to see the value super fast. And there are several, like similar to the paywalls, there's the product-led walls that I like to call, like there's no concept for this, but it's like a product-led wall where we detect points in the fun in the cycle where we can impact the customer to have a demo. So aspirationally, this is where I would like to get to from a product perspective. And this is what I look at whenever I'm looking at some SaaS products. I always like to look at this because this is a good indicator. Like, do they have a demo or not? That's a really good indicator of if it's product driven or not product driven. And if you go into many, many of the websites, book a call. In many of the SaaS products you see is book a call but I really want to try it. Like I want to know something before booking a call, you know? So that's the whole concept behind our platform being free and us monetizing the higher event. 
Like we want people to try it out and see if they like it and try the cost calculator and try what they can do with the platform. And if that works for the purpose, then go ahead and hire, right? So if you are happy with the cost, you are happy with all of the breakdown we've given you, and we are gonna give you legal coverage, then you can hire, but you've seen the value, right? If not, yeah. we would be just a landing page that we tell you, hey, you can hire in any country with us, book a call, but how? Like, is it a, an HR consultancy firm? No, it's a SaaS product, right? So personally, I want people to try it. Like that's my my whole point. So let's say I have SaaS startup, not let's say mm -hmm. I have SaaS startup, which does behavior analytics of your users on your website or web app. And we have two paths. Of course, it's self-serve. So you can sign up over there. You can do whatever you want by yourself. And also, if we see engagement triggers, our sales manager would follow up and ask whether you want to have a call. We can engage you more. We can tell you about this and that this kind of stuff. But there are two paths of registration. First path is to see a demo, which is you provide your name, your email, and you see demo, but it gets into the pipe drive, let's say, and we have the lead. In this case, you see the value because it's demo, it shows you numbers, cool graphs and stuff. And the second path is just a normal registration. You sign up over there, you invite your teammates, you implement it on your website and so on. The question is whether this approach is good or you would change it to a more ideal one. I think it's a really good question. And the answer I'm going to give you is always it depends because I don't have all the data to understand like the, and I don't know the user, but I'll give you like my thought process of how I would analyze this. So the first flow, it's the, the normal flow, right? Where you basically see a video and that's it. Like from my experience, and this is just my experience, that works. But we are evolving into a world where competitors do let you try the product, right? And we are evolving into, I don't know how to call this, but basically it's the WhatsApp effect where everyone expects an instant reply. So everyone expects to try out things instantly and if not, discard it, right? Because there are so many options that if I don't find what I need in an instant, then I'm going to the next one. So that's my main two cents with the first flow. And I know it works because I've seen it work. Like it's the, the typical way of, of doing SaaS. And in the second flow, it depends on, on how you approach the product tool. And product tools are, well, I give context. So a product tool is basically a, the introduction you get into the platform, right? When you sign up. And that introduction is critical to how the user is going to interact with your product and how you are going to drive the user towards the value. So the best companies I've seen in terms of SaaS companies, and, and you have a lot of them like Slack or any of these companies, is that you focus on your main value and you guide the user towards the main value you want to offer him. And if you want, you can even customize the experience for each user. So I'm gonna like say a silly example, but if you realize when you are logging into any of the SaaS, like Slack, first time you register in Slack, you always have a few questions before you get into the product. Like, hey, are you alone or are you gonna use this in a small company of one to five people, five to 10 people? How are you going to use it? And you get a few uh, prompts. All of that data, I always say like, don't ask too many questions initially because people could get scared, but identify the key questions that you can ask 
to basically offer a customized experience in the sense that if I know that, for example, you are a customer that's planning to use Slack for a company of more than 50 people, then I can give you one experience when you log in for the first time. But if it's more for a small team, then I can give you a different experience. So you are going to see the value tailored to your experience, and then you are likely to convert more. So to answer your question, for SaaS products and for the behavioral, for example, the second flow would be more ideal, but you cannot throw the user into your product and expect the user to do the actions that you want to do. Like you need to guide the user towards those actions. So you need to guide the user through the flow. And in, in the case of Oyster, for example, we have a lot of room to grow there. Like it's something that we haven't explored much yet because we are pretty young as a startup, but there's room to grow. Like there's many ways we could do this, but imagine like we know our value is hiding. So we have 10 features. I don't care about the other 10 features. The only thing I care when you sign up is that you end up hiring someone, right? So how can I drive you to end up hiring and what inputs do I need to know in order to tailor your experience? That's mainly the way of thinking there. Yeah, got it. Thank you. We talked a bit about your clients. They are obviously companies. And I understand your geography is all over the world, right? Mm -hmm. But who are your end users? That's a really good question. So in a way, our users are our customers because they are the ones that are using it. Inside our customers, there will be the HR department, which is the, the one that mainly uses our platform, like the people working for HR for that company. In smaller startups, it would be the, the CEO because there's usually no HR, right? But basically, that's our main user. But we also like to focus a lot on team members. And team members are the people you end up hiring. And here, it's another concept of product growth, in my opinion, is like, and, and I'll throw you back a question. So you've used Slack, right? Yes. How did you find out about Slack? It was, I guess, 2014. So it just started and everybody knew that there is a new slash the only one business messenger. Before that, I used Skype, I guess. Mm -hmm. Hard to tell. So we started with Slack and it was cool. Definitely better than nothing. Because before that, you only had emails and Skype and actually that's it, I guess. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm asking the question is because like, okay, it's easy to focus on the end user in being your customer, but there's a, a smart approach, a smart growth approach where you focus on the user of your user in the sense that you focus on the, in our case, on the people that they are going to hire. Because by providing value to those people, it's likely that those people will end up recommending the company to be hired through us. In the case of Slack, like what usually happens is that if I ever go into a startup that doesn't have Slack, I would recommend like, hey, why don't we use Slack? Like it's bottom up instead of the top down. And the reason I'm saying this is because I've seen magic. Like this is like works magically because whenever a company tries to push a tool into their employees, it never works. There's always friction. Like people don't like it. They don't see the value. Like they don't understand why do I have to use this tool when I was using this other tool that works perfectly or when I wasn't using any other tool. But whenever it comes from down, like Notion, Notion is a really good example. People started using Notion and proposing Notion at their companies to manage like documentation. So it's sort of in some companies like this is generalizing, but basically that's more or less the concept. Like 
trying to build a product that provides so much value that you can recommend it upwards in terms of SaaS. Like it's the user of your user that is the one that's recommending it. Yeah, it's cool that it works for your company, but actually I wouldn't totally agree about Notion and Slack because they haven't disrupted the market. They created the market because before Slack, there was no messenger like that for business cooperation. There was email and Skype and maybe something more like WhatsApp or whatever. And the guy who created it, I don't remember the names, but the guy who created it said, Okay, there is a problem on market that nobody sees, but when we come with our product, speaking of intuition, right? I mean, huge balls. <laughs> uh, when we come to the market, everybody will understand that using emails and Skype for business communication is wrong. We'll just replace it. Good for him. I think that something similar happened with Notion because before Notion, I don't remember any kind of such products. I mean, we use Google Documents, Google obviously, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this is not a knowledge base. Confluence is more for developers. It's very hard product and the learning curve is not easy and, and fast as well. So you use Google Docs and you have a lot of like billions of gazillions of Google Docs spread between users that some users shared those docs, some users didn't, and it's very big mess. So they created this product and you have really affordable in all the senses, in, in pricing affordable, time affordable, learning curve affordable, knowledge base that has a lot of templates. They had some templates from the very beginning and it's super cool. For your project though, I totally agree that this is cool strategy. This is something that we don't do. It's just some thinking out loud here that we could be doing the strategy that other companies are doing in the sense of but speaking specifically about growth. Like I'm not speaking about the foundation. Like when you are founding it, I agree with you completely. Like you need to find them fit. You need to get some users using it. You don't care that much. Like you focus on your user, the customer, and you deliver value to the customer. But when you want to grow, there's many different ways of growing. And I've seen that a way that works really well is when you manage to get that viral loop where it's your user recommending other users to use it and that ends up making the customer buy it. Yeah, I understand. You, you make your users your ambassadors, then they spread the word. My point is that for Slack and Notion, because those were new products, something very new, it was a little bit easier. I mean, it was hard to build it and it was hard to believe that it will disrupt the market. But it was a little bit easier to get viral. But with your product, yeah. the question is how it's understandable how it works right now. Your sub end users, your people who been hired with the help of your platform, spread the word and then other people would buy it. Yeah, that's purely a hypothesis. Eh? But how to get this critical mass, how to get this potential? Because before you hired first people, there is no people who would recommend you, right? Exactly. No, no, I agree with you. And that's the reason why we are not doing it right now. Like it's a really complex topic. And if I were to know like the answer to this question, I wouldn't be saying it so openly, right? Because if not, competitors can come in and, and just say like, hey, this guy has a really cool idea. Let's do it. Right, yeah, good. Exactly. <laughs> but to be honest, like it's just something like, imagine if you could generate that. It's not applicable to all cases. I think that for our case, you are completely right. It's more complex to apply. 
If I'm completely honest with you, if I'm someone that wants to be hired, what matters to me is getting hired. What that matters to me is getting the job rather than the company that's been used to hire me right now. But I don't know if there's a potential scenario where that perspective could change, where, for example, you could be offering like something really different uh, that makes you want to do that. Like here in Spain, we have something that's pretty unique and that's booming a lot. It's a startup called Kobe. I think I, I heard about it. Yeah. So it's booming a lot. They are really, really cool guys. So basically you have a card and your company, it's like a benefit, a company benefit. And with that card, you pay for some expenses and those expenses are tax exempt. And this is like the, yeah, it's like salary in kind. There's a limit. So it's basically in Spain, there's a limit. So you can only spend a percentage of your salary in restaurants, kids, and I think it's also transport. But you are saving a ton of money because you are not paying taxes, right? So imagine if it's like 200 euros in restaurants or in food and you are not paying like the VAT for 20%, you are saving some money every month, like some really, really nice money. And the thing is that I used to have that benefit in my previous company, Job and Talent. They offered me that benefit. Now it's something I really want in my new company. Like it's something that... I got used to it and now I'm every single day pinging the HR team like, hey, how are we looking into this benefit, right? Do we, are we going to offer this benefit? So I think there's room for it. It's just finding what it is, right? I, I think there's room. Imagine if we could offer this sort of benefits. Maybe there's room for people to recommend us. Just something like it's not easy. And if, if it were easy, we would have done it, right? <laughs> I got it. How do you collect and implement user feedback into your product? Mm -hmm. Interesting, like super good question. So it's really nice if you have the chance to have a UX team focused only on this. So luckily at Oyster, I'm really grateful that we have a UX team that collects feedback every week and shares like the insights that they are collecting. So they are having like meetings with customers every single week and they are sharing the insights with the rest of the product team. So I've never seen that before in the other companies I've worked for, but it's something that I really value now because it's a lot of time investment that we use. Like sometimes you don't have that much time to sit down with 20 customers a month. It's crazy, right? So we are getting a lot of inputs that are informing our decisions and are informing our roadmaps. So. I'm happy that most of our roadmaps are informed by those insights that we get there. Those qualitative insights. We also have like quantitative ones, which are purely data, the tools like Amplitude, Pendo, Google Analytics. So that's one side, but I really value this part of the equation, which I didn't have before. Like before it was the product manager going into a customer and trying to figure out the things, right? Or the product designer. Having a UX team, it's a game changer. It's underrated in my opinion, like super underrated. By UX team, you mean probably UX researchers, right? UX researchers and UX designers both are working similar. Like the UX designers are more with the product team, but they also participate in some of the interviews. Okay, that's really cool. We do this for our clients. And especially nowadays, clients want to be cautious. They want to spend less money on stuff that they're more sure about. So they order such services a lot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because last five years, it was, yeah, let's hire a lot of UI designers and do, I don't know, stupid A-B tests between dark mode and light mode and whatever works more red button, yellow button. 
and now UX is uh, on summit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, last question. What is the best and the worst part of your job? Oof, that's a tough question. Best part is having impact on people, building something that's providing value to someone. It's super gratifying. Like It's such a good feeling when that happens. Obviously, you fail many times, like we are not in an ideal world where that succeeds every time. But that's really gratifying, like seeing that you are building something that, that really changes something. It's difficult to answer the worst part. I'd say personally, for me, it would be documentation. Documentation is always like a tough part to do. And there's like many different use cases, many different things that you, you have to cover. But I also, as the years go by, I'm seeing more the value of documentation, seeing more the value of knowledge transfer. So even though I don't like it that much, I know it's super important and it's something I, I put a lot of emphasis in, but I don't like it that much. <laughs> This is how you get to use Notion GPT-3 feature. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure that it will work. I'm going to try it out, definitely. I'm using ChatGPT already, so let's see if Notion's one helps me too. <laughs> okay, great. Let me know. I'm curious yeah. too, because to documentation, I don't know one person who not even enjoys it, but who is okay with building documentation and yes. who likes it at all. So mm. this would be a deal breaker. If it works, Just call me, we create new startup Definitely. You know, documentation <laughs> through GPT-3. I think it would work. Eh? I think there's people that are going to make it work. It's a pain point for many, many people. Like I have a friend in the VC industry, uh, investment, and he was telling me the other day, you know, like, Oof, I have to build this massive text to get the investment approved. And I'm building the context part, like the industry information with ChatGPT. And it's saving so much time. It's generating three or four pages of content that I don't have to generate anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I should adopt it more into my work, maybe to connect it to Slack. When someone asks me questions, I just GPT will take care. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And then my company ruined in 2.5 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for today's conversation. It was really awesome to talk to you. A lot of insights. I wish you big success into your company. And I really believe in social impact that your company does. I think it's really, really, really cool. So I wish you and your company will grow more and more. And I will see you on our Polish market more than, than your competitors <laughs> very, very soon. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It was such a great time. Like I, I had so much fun talking to you. So really, thank you. Thank you. Too. Have a great day. Have a great day. Product Leaders Podcast is brought to you by Fire Art Studio. I was the host, Dima Wendlinski. To find out more about Fire Art and how we aim to build a brand that will contribute to the world with useful products that empower people and make their lives easier, visit fireart.studio. Search for product leaders in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you never miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fire Art Studio, thank you very much for listening.